Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Teresa. And we are the co-authors of the book, Pass the Baton, Empowering All Music Students. Our goal is to share stories of educators who are passing the baton and empowering their music students. We want to help teachers create music lessons that transform students from passive consumers to vibrant creatives. Welcome back to the Pass the Baton podcast. We're here to talk about all things student empowerment and music education. Before we introduce today's guest, we want to remind you to follow or subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. In addition, if you like what you hear today, please consider leaving a rating or review. That's what helped podcasts like Pass the Baton grow. Teresa, it was really fun talking to Scott Edgar today. He is so easy to talk to, and he has so many great things to talk about um, when it comes to social and emotional learning in a music ed classroom. I learned so much today. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I know sometimes... SEL, it, it feels like a buzzword almost. It feels like that, you know, that thing that we hear about that the box we have to check, but it was really great to hear him talk about it from a practical standpoint. And then also just how important it is and how much it's going to really impact our students when we can incorporate those strategies. Yeah. Okay, welcome back. We have the pleasure today speaking with Dr. Scott Edgar. Um, Scott, I think I've, I've, I think the first time I got to meet you was at Illinois Music Ed Conference in Peoria. I heard you speak, and it was just a really interesting session. And then since then, I think I've picked up your Music Ed uh, and Social Emotional Learning book. Um, there's just, and I know there's a lot more things out there too that you projects you've been working on. So first of all, thanks for being with us today, Catherine. Teresa, such an honor to be here. Thank you so much. And so many different things that over the last two years, it has just taken off like gangbusters. My goodness. It was like, <laughs> you know, it took us 27 years to get to this point in SEL. And then it took us a pandemic to realize that, hey, SEL can be of service. So thank you so much for giving a, a platform for us to be able to talk a little bit more about this. Yeah, such an important topic. So if I guess if we could start, could you just introduce yourself a little bit and tell us your background, current teaching position, all those good things? You know, I I would love to, but when push comes to shove, I'm a daddy, I'm a husband, I'm a person who (laughs) likes to grill, Uh, we have two cats, Uh, I'm an avid sports fan, all of that to me I think actually matters more than anything that I'm going to tell you after that. And I think oftentimes when we talk about how do we engage with our students, we forget that we're teaching human beings as opposed Mm -hmm. to teaching, you know, musicians. And it was like, oh, is the music more important or is the person more important? So that's why I always like to start with that. Um, The nuts and bolts of it is, you know, I was a K-12 music teacher in Ohio for 10 years of my life. I went to Bowling Green State University for my undergrad, master's at University of Dayton, taught in Dayton, Ohio, uh, and then uh, went to University of Michigan for my doctorate. And that's when I discovered this thing called social and emotional learning. Uh, Oftentimes, the question I get is, oh, so when you were teaching middle school band, did you do SEL with them? No, I didn't know what it was. (laughs) You know, that's why I went to University of Michigan and I discovered these things because I came in with some big questions. So now I teach at Lake Forest College, which is just a little bit north of Chicago. I'm chair of the Department of Music. Uh, I work in the Music Ed Department, and I also direct the concert band there. Uh, A lot of the other hats that I wear, I'm also director of practice and research for the Center for Arts Education and Social and Emotional Learning, uh, which is dedicated to finding those intersections between SEL and music and arts education. That's great. That sounds awesome. So can you give us like 
in a nutshell, what is social emotional learning? You know, it's so it's such an important question, right? Because it's really become buzzworded. And, you know, everyone's talking about SEL and oftentimes people say, just just what is this? And it is such an important question because so many people are taking it in a lot of different directions. Some of are accurate and some are, to be honest, not. I mean, some people think, oh, SEL, that's where we just come together and we talk about our feelings and everyone gets a hug. Um, well, emotional vocabulary building is part of that and asking our students what they're bringing to the table and how they're feeling is part of it, but it's not all of it. And other people are saying, well, when SEL's misconstrued, it's another form of control. Absolutely. So social uh, SEL, social and emotional learning to me, is a set of skills that we can embed into our music classrooms to help our students be more independent, to help them understand who they are, to facilitate a sense of belonging and safety in our classrooms, and to, as is central to your message, how can we amplify our student voices? <clears throat> how can we give them more agency in our classroom so that they affect the change and it's not all just us a one-way arrow being the fixers in our classroom but as opposed to our students having an active role in their educational process and all of this is helping prepare our students for the tests of life you know when they're not in our music classroom that's what SEL is all about it's about us coming together and using music as a portal music as a vehicle to get at all of these skills that we've put out there as advocacy statements in music education for decades. Well, this is a way to make that tangible. Yeah. And I, I think something that I, I've kind of clung to is when I've heard you say, you know, we as educators do not teach music, but we teach children music. And it is such a distinct, you know, some, something to just, what am I trying to say? It is an important message of, right. That it's, it's the children that we're teaching and it's this portal of music that we're teaching them. Um, so what does that look, what does SEL look like in a music classroom? Well, it, it's such a brilliant question because it's so different depending on what the who the teacher is, right. <laughs> whether it, it's elementary or whether it's middle school, mm -hmm. high school, band, choir, orchestra. And, you know, people say, you know, when you go into a classroom that is SEL rich, what does it look like? Well, the answer is typically it looks like just phenomenal music teaching. It looks like a classroom where it is engaged, that the students are empowered. Oftentimes it looks a little chaotic. Oftentimes it looks at, wh where's the teacher? And then we start to say, wow, these students are actively engaged in their learning process. So, you know, I kind of flew by this really quickly, but there's three big buckets of SEL. The first one is identity. How do our students understand who they are and what they're bringing to a space? So do I have a classroom where as we're engaging in music, our students are able to connect that music to their lives. They're able to say, here's what I'm bringing to the table, and here's my background, here's my demographic, here's my identity, and here's how music maps onto that. Is it relevant? Is it so far irrelevant that that's why the classroom isn't landing? Maybe. And then, together, are we facilitating this sense of belonging, a space for vulnerability, because we know the music classroom necessitates vulnerability. We have to feel comfortable risk-taking. You know, there's no hiding in music class. Even if we're making the conscious choice to not contribute, that is a decision that everybody sees. You know, if that doesn't happen in math class, okay, we get that. And then the most powerful thing, when our teachers who are hitting this out of the park, we see students who are actively guiding the ship, who the teachers 
are are there as facilitator as opposed to director. And so what does it look like? So many different things, but we see music that is relevant to our students' lives being explored together and that all the decisions are not made by the teacher. That's, that's really, it's so interesting to hear. And I love how you mentioned it being something that's embedded into the classroom and not just like, checked my box. I did my SEL today, you know, which sometimes with other initiatives and other things that does happen. We, we just try to check the box and do it and move on to the next thing. Um, so can I jump in on that one, Teresa? I'm sorry. Please. And, and because I think there's a lot of times that that's what we feel like our administrators expect. We feel like that's like, you mm -hmm. know, if they're going to come in and there's an evaluative uh, part of this, it's like, well, how can I show them SEL? Social and emotional learning needs to be part of everything that we do. And when we properly contextualize it within how rich music is, you know, it can't be the first five minutes of class. It can't be, this is my SEL piece or SEL Fridays. You know, how many minutes do we need to dedicate to SEL? All of them. But all of our minutes need to be music too. It's not an either or. It's this false dichotomy that I think many people, especially now as we're getting back to post-pandemic reality of putting on concerts. It's like, oh, SEL, that was really important when we weren't able to do concerts. Now that we're back to concert, we're going right back to status quo. And we need to reconceptualize this, that when we have this other side of connection, of student empowerment, that it makes everything else better. So all the minutes. But also, too, I think, right, the first time you try some different things, you offer more voice or you, right, you, you, you um, ask the kids a question that they're not used to being asked, um, it's going to take time for them to start to um, understand, like, no, I really, the teacher really wants to know my thoughts and my voice is valued and heard in this classroom. So you, you almost can't have a SEL Friday because, you know, you, you've got to do it enough where they start to understand, like they're re, kind of reprogramming because perhaps in other classes or in music class before, you know, me or whatever, that wasn't something that was part of their day. That wasn't part of their routine. That wasn't something in the, that was embedded in lessons. So they really do need that repetition of like, no, really, I do want to hear your thoughts. And you're going to see me put your thoughts into action, right? And kids also need to learn that you're safe to divulge to. Yeah. Like, because that first time you do it, kids smell fake. They're like, oh, this oh, yeah. is different. This is different. Why? <laughs> well, well, what are we trying to pull off here? Right. And then they're like, Oh, there's that authenticity that emerges. Yeah. So, hey, I, yeah, I'm trying something new. Give me some time. Give me some space. And trust me, it, it's it's going to feel good eventually. Um, but, you know, it is that. It's like, okay, so if this is part of everything that we've always done, you know, some teachers, I do believe that this is part of their teaching DNA. Sure. Some teachers are, mm -hmm. I'm recognizing that I need to connect more deeply with my students. You know, one of the big entry point questions that we are asking our teachers now is how do you connect with SEL? And you know what are you bringing with as a connection point to understanding how this melds with your teacher identity? And the most powerful question that we can ask is, what do you know about your students? And if we get to a really deep space of, well, I know this, 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 and it's beyond even they play or favorite color or voice part to something that is substantive, that's gonna get us something. But beyond what do we know, we ask ourselves, what don't we know and how are we going to find out? And oftentimes, this leads us to a space that we're going to have to have some conversations. We're going to have to do things that might be slightly different than what are our tried and true practices. 
Yeah. That, that relationship piece is, is so big. And I remember when we talked to um, Jesse Rathgeber, he was talking about that idea too, but what I loved the, the point that he made was it's not just what we think we know about them, but what do we actually know? We, you know, there's the assumptions that we make about all third graders or all eighth grade flute players, but what do we really know about the kids who are sitting in front of us? Well, and, and Jesse's world, who who just hits it out of the park with access and accessibility and mm-hmm. neurodivergent students, um, the, the lessons that we can learn from when we are working with neurodiversity to SEL world is, is really uh, profound. You know, the adage that I've heard him say more than once is if you've met one student with autism, you've met one student with autism. <laughs> well, the 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 reality for our world is if you've met one student with trauma, you've met one student with trauma. And until we understand the reality, when we've met one student who might have a motivation that's different from our motivation, we've met one student who has a different motivational <laughs> approach. Okay, great. So this is where we get at that point of the relationship. And it needs to be a targeted individual relationship with each and every one of our students. 98% isn't enough. You know, if we don't have a relationship with those two students, that's going to have a profound effect on their perception of our class. And the music is not going to be there for those two. So it's a really valid point. And thank you, dear friend, Jesse. So thank you for bringing him into this. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, you know, we've heard you talk about relationships. You, you you said the word empower a couple of times and student voice. I mean, you're having a conversation about SEL and we're having a conversation about student empowerment, but they sound like the same conversation, which is really exciting for me. So, you know, can you talk, talk a little bit more about how those two things really go together? Well, let me just put it this way. For the Center for Arts Education and SEL, we have a director of student empowerment. So, you know, <laughs> I, I think that they, you can't have one without the other. You know, when we talk about having students understand what they can bring to the table, I think what SEL does is it provides us a framework to understand that I don't always need to be in control as a teacher, that it gives us space to amplify student voice. Um, One of my dear friends, I used to say that SEL gives our students voices, and one of my dear friends literally slapped me upside the head and said, no, our students have voices. We just silence them. SEL gives us a space to understand that we need to listen harder than we speak, and some of these strategies of identity, belonging, and agency really help us understand that there are some targeted ways of thinking about how we can take a step back and then our students can take a step forward. But oftentimes, that's not how we were taught and that's not mm-hmm. what was modeled for us and that's not how we've taught the majority of our careers. So it really is this narrative flip that we need to start to really think about. So when we talk about how are student empowerment and SEL related, the answer is student empowerment to me, when it reaches a point of actualization that we feel in our classrooms, that means that SEL has taken a foothold and many of the other skill sets that we would kind of target in SEL, the finish line is student empowerment. But one thing that I just want to take a moment to say that student empowerment, it cannot be something that teachers give. It's not like, I empower you. No, because that's still holding us in a space of power. Student empowerment is something that happens when we 
pull ourselves out of the equation and we see what emerges and students own skill sets. So the skill sets of students saying, this is my strength. This is my need. This is how I am starting to get to a space of understanding and self-assessing. This is where I'm showing resilience. This is where I'm understanding social cues and social dynamics and communicating in effective ways. That's SEL that results in student empowerment. And you think, um, too, it's it, on the teacher side, it's knowing when to step back um, and let kids go, but also knowing when to step in and help kids see themselves as that. Like I had a kid today who was, I'm like, we're going to go and make a melody. And can you make a rainy day melody? And the kid was like, I don't know how to make a melody. Right. And it was like helping him see um we're going to explore and we're going to try it. And then when he brought back to, to me, I just helped him see like you created that today. You were a creative being today. And it helped him kind of see himself. Like he, he kind of put up this wall, like I can't do that, you know? So is some of it too, of the, the teacher seeing when to um, help kids along the way, either see themselves a certain way or know they're struggling, but they're not struggling enough for me to intervene. I'm going to let them, you know, go over that hump so that they get the, the the high feeling on the other side of success. We are human litmus tests. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's like we're constantly measuring what individual students need. And the problem is we actually come, you know, in music education, we detest standardized tests. But... In music education, we actually do a lot of standardization. There's one piece of music that we're all engaging with. There's one hoop. There's one bar that we all jump after. So from that perspective, my exactly what you just said, Catherine, hits it out of the park. You know, we're seeing what individual students need. And the level up from that is not necessarily where the teacher goes in and says, oh, here's how I can help you. It's, hey, I see Johnny's doing this exceptionally well. Why don't we tag Johnny in to give you a hand on this? Um, but you know what? I see that you, Juan, are doing a brilliant job at this. I think you can help Susie. So that we're seeing the ways that we're starting to understand that we all have gifts that we're bringing. We're all empowered to bring our expertise to the classroom. It's not all the same expertise. And what does this lead to? An understanding that diversity matters, an understanding that what we bring to our space, what makes us different, makes us stronger. And is that going to be a portal to help us understand so many other challenges that we're facing in our world and how that diversity, equity, inclusion matters? Yes, but our entry point is musical. Mm-hmm. So I guess we talked about this this flip-flop, I guess, or you know, a flip of instruction um, and how we are engaging the kids in their music making. Um, what, what do you see as a benefit to the kids when you, when you do this with them in the class, when you infuse social emotional learning in your music making, what's the difference for the kids? Absolutely. And, you know, I don't want to come across as saying, oh, the teacher never instructs because that that's not <laughs> what this looks like. You know, I mean, we are the musical guide and sure. there's musical <laughs> expertise that we bring to the plate that, our students probably don't have. So there are elements of, you know, this isn't like, oh, we're just going to go in and say, hey, who's an expert at something and we're going to go that route. No, there's calculated planning and understanding, you know, how do we scaffold into this? This isn't something that we go in and it's, you know, all all over the place. The the benefit here is a more autonomous class. The, The benefit here is more independent musicians who understand how they are engaging with the content. 
The benefit here is that the skills that we are harnessing and practicing and rehearsing through a musical idiom are going to come with them for the rest of their lives. You know, our goal can't be to produce more professional musicians. That That's just not a reality for our profession. The answer is, though, what's the benefit? Well, for me, it's two things. One, I want them to be lifelong, passionate advocates and lovers of music. And that could mean being a professional musician. And I want them to come back and say, wow, I learned so many things that have helped me for the rest of my life. And oftentimes, it's not the B-flat scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's like the the meme you've seen with um, somebody holding the recorder and saying, oh, thank goodness I know how to play hot cross buttons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the lifelong lovers passionate about music, that's, that's so important. Yeah. All right. So if, if someone's wanting to dip their toe in and not sure how to suddenly embed in and what they do, what, what are some strategies you could suggest or what are, you know, what would be a good starting point? Yeah. So, I mean, the question that I talked about, you know, just saying, you know, what do you know about your students and, and how do you start your students to say, uh, look at your students and say, what are their skill sets? You know, we, we call this valuing cultural assets. So what are the things that are rich in your classroom already? And then when we understand our strengths, then we can start to flip that on its head and say, these are things that we need to work on. I think the first thing that we always need to do is we need to take a look at our class. And this comes to us, just so you know, from my brilliant colleague at the center, his name's Urell Lashley, and he came up with a STAY model. So the first thing we do is we select the SEL competency. So what is the skill that we need to build? You know, as I'm talking to teachers across the country right now, sometimes it's impulse control, right? We're seeing a lot of instances across the country of impulse control. Okay, so that's what we're gonna target. Then, so we've just selected. Then we're gonna translate that. Well, what does impulse control look like for a kindergartner? Very different than what it looks like for a high school senior, right? Mm -hmm. So that impulse control, and what does it look like in elementary general? Well, let's think, maybe it's not all going for the dough boom whacker, or impulse control is cutting off when the conductor cuts off for the symphony orchestra rehearsal. So we're starting to translate this. Then, you know, what is a moment when we can actualize this? What are we actually gonna do in our classroom to build this capacity? And sometimes it's through the routine of our music classroom. Sometimes it's linking it to something extra musical. Well, you know, there's this movie called Amadeus, and the feedback that Mozart got was too many notes, right? Okay, so maybe Mozart needed to exercise a little impulse control to know when to stop. Well, where's some spots in here where you think that the composer really kind of hit the sweet spot, like this was good, or does anyone have a spot in their music where you think too many notes and the flutes are gonna raise their hand? So we're starting to have this be part of our vocabulary part of our flow and you know these, these things just start to come out as what this is going to look like and then the final part of after we action the why of stays youth empowerment so okay so now we're going to take this piece of music and we're going to rearrange it we're going to rearrange it for uh for our ensemble in a way that it's going to work now this might be an orf arrangement or this might be a pep band arrangement or it might be a, a barbershop quartet arrangement so different levels we've translated in different ways and we finally come to this space, well, we're gonna make this authentic for us, and then we're gonna rehearse it. So we've selected impulse control. 
we've translated it for many different settings. We figured out what we're going to do to actualize it, and youth empowerment is part of all of it. So those are some ways to start to conceptualize what this looks like. In terms of resources, we have so many exciting things that we're, we're putting out there, and I know there's going to be some links associated in the liner notes of this episode, but I highly encourage starting at going to artsedsel.org. Uh, that's where the center is living, and we, we have some great resources there to help people get at the point, Teresa, that you just mentioned. You know, if I want to dip a mm -hmm. toe in. And, you know, toe dipping is often just asking more questions in class, mm -hmm. just asking more questions yeah. of your students. And then that can, okay, I want to put a foot in. <laughs> great. So how are we going to ask more questions and then actually do what students are saying? <laughs> right okay so that's that next step and then you know the deep dive is how do we really start to flip this classroom to really understand that our students are going to have a meaningful say in what's happening mm -hmm. yeah. and i'm going to be the like devil's advocate for a minute but elementary general i have 500 students how do i get to know them all i'm sure that's a question you've heard before as well what so yeah and so you know the the number piece is huge and, mm -hmm. you know, and I get that. And and let me confound that problem even more. <laughs> I have 500 students and I see them 30 minutes once a week. Okay. Right, <clears throat> right. right. So, so let's, <laughs> let's live in reality land. I get yeah. it. Okay. So then, you know, there are obviously limitations. And the teacher going in and saying, I have 500, you know, even for a kindergarten, do you know 500 people's names? Well, that's what I'm trying to do right now. <laughs> so every time that I come up to you, please tell me your name. Tell me the right way to say your name because that matters because your yes. identity matters to me. And I want to pronounce your name how you want it to be said. Even just there, I've shown my own vulnerability that, oh, my goodness, I'm trying and I know I'm going to fail, but I want to keep on trying. But I still value you. I still value that I want to know you. I want and, and name is entry point. And then after a few times, you start to get those names and we start to build that. But the reality is these don't need to be earth shattering moments. <clears throat> this is humanity at its finest. And we're really just saying, I care about you. Mm hmm. I've really found because I, I have about 500 kids, but I found when I if I have a student who's having trouble in music class, if there's a time that I can have them to come and help me and be a helper, even if it's for a younger class or something, one or two times of doing that for 10 minutes during their snack time, they come to help me and I get to, you know, just have a conversation with them about a movie they saw or whatever. It really, like you're saying, it's not an earth shattering amount of time for uh, the message to be sent that I care about you and I want to know more about you. And, you know, and so even things like that, when you have just a little bit of time to give, it goes a long way with a lot of kids. You know, there's a lot in what you just said. And the, the first part that really struck me was that, you know, we, we have students who come to our space and this is maybe the only space where they feel like they have a home. They mm -hmm. feel like this is their academic home. So sometimes their behavior screams, Maybe literally, maybe not, but <laughs> behavior is the loudest form of, converse, uh, of communication that we have. You know, mm -hmm. students are telling us they need help and rarely do they use words. Mm -hmm. So if we're really in tune with that and we're in tune with, pun intended, uh, in tune with how our students really are having a safe space in our classroom and that safe space is allowing some walls to come down. And so that behavior might be a little bit more intense. That behavior might really be telling us something that we need to listen to. 
Um, and the second part of it is when we do give students that uh, that that moment of leadership, that moment of saying, hey, I need your help, that is a huge leap of faith because most of us would think, wow, this student is off in left field, this student is not locked in, I'm not going to give a leadership responsibility to that student for in a million years when that might be the one thing mm-hmm. that is going to have ownership, going to have empowerment, and then that student is going to be locked in. So we look at it from an SEL perspective. It's how do our students really find a space in the classroom where they belong? And they don't feel a sense of belonging until they know they can contribute. Mm-hmm. Mm. That, that stuff is so powerful. And just letting kids know that everybody can be a leader and every, you know, you all have those important things to offer. And, and even beyond that, that, you know, leadership is important, but also being an empathetic follower. So I can't mm-hmm. always be in a position where, you know, the misunderstandings of leadership, that leadership often is I'm in the front with a rope pulling everybody as opposed to <laughs> being boss, right? So, um, understanding how I can support someone who's a decision maker. And I actually like that language a little bit better. I've been using that, you know, you're going to be our decision maker today, as opposed to you're going to be our leader. You know, Mm -hmm. it really positions it in terms of the tangible. Well, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to have some spaces where you're going to have some tough decisions to make. Are you up for it? Right? (laughs) And then that student really feels like, wow, I've accomplished something. I got to make a big decision. And then we see the effect of that decision. We see that effect how that that one decision impacts both the process and product of our music classroom. Oh, I love that. Might be needing to use that. <laughs> um, well, and I guess let's switch gears a little bit. I We've been asking this question recently that, um, and I think you've answered this, but sometimes we need like an explicit answer to this question when we as music teachers um, worry about conf- uh, high quality performances. It's a bigger part of our job. And so you know, how do you balance empowering students, um, making sure you're embedding social and emotional learning in your classroom and these high quality performances? It, it can't be an either or. So, you know, I, I had a really nice conversation with Omar Thomas, an amazing band composer. And uh, it was at Midwest this last year. It was in a clinic and we, we were talking and Um, I will never forget his response because he looked at the audience and looked at me and said, Scott, my music is not correct. If you ignore this side of things, you're not getting to the place you want to be. You're limiting it. You know, it positions us in the role of janitor where we clean notes and we clean rhythms and there's always more time to clean. There's always something else to clean. But there's a whole other world on the other side of correct. And that other side of correct is connection. When we can figure out how does this piece of music connect with our students' lives, we get what Omar was encouraging us to think about. How can this performance have heart? How can it connect? So it cannot be an either or, but I'm here to just validate that that takes a leap of faith. That, you know, it's like, okay, but right, I get Mm -hmm. it. You know, the concert's ticking down. And this isn't to say that, you know, that week before the concert, don't plan a stop the presses SEL moment <laughs> because you might need some time to make sure you can get from start to finish. I get that. I live that world. So there's some calculated work here. But even in that moment of that week before rehearsal, well, if we have to perform tomorrow, you're going to be anxious. Why? Well, I don't know if we can get through it. I don't know where I, okay, so we acknowledge our strengths, we acknowledge our needs, we are vulnerable. So what do we need to do to get to a space where we're gonna feel calm and confident? 
Okay, now we're starting to talk about this. It's not an either or. We are enhancing the performance process, which will then impact the product. We just need to think about, we're not talking about, oh, how do you feel? We're really using the repertoire in our rehearsal process as a way to get to a high quality performance. So this is a space where I think we need to really think about, you know, what are our core values? And I do believe that one of the strongest things that we do in music education is to teach our students how to be excellent, how to be excellent in something. And there's a level up from that too, that what if our students can articulate what excellence means to them and how close are they to achieving that excellence. <clears throat> excellence is something that we can never let go of because our students want to be so part of something that's great and they know when they're not, okay? Mm -hmm. SEL can get us there too. Yeah, I love that. So, you know, the, the question essentially came about because so often we would do these presentations and talk about student empowerment, talk about all that. And the very end, the, the hand would go up and that's what they would say. But what about the concert? Like, no, it's all the same. It's all it's all part of it. And yes, there are still days that I'm going to say, no, it's F sharp. Like, <laughs> that, you know, that's still happening. Right. And then all the trumpets go. <laughs> but it, it's but we're still just we're embedding all of these things in what we do trusting that process and and knowing that that the kids are going to be better for it and it's, it's going to be a more meaningful experience for them absolutely every day of the week and you know when when our students are then able to say you know f sharp middle finger first finger on clarinet right all that technique mm -hmm. stuff you know even there there's a way to i'll use it as a verb sel that right <laughs> so turn to your neighbor show them what this is find one spot in that measure that didn't go how you want and find someone next to you who can help you fix that okay these little things that are going to improve what we're after but it takes us out of the equation and it positions them in a space to have a louder voice those are the ways that we can you know it's not an either or yeah and then once we do that we have kids who can make music not just when they're sitting in our classroom but wherever they are in the world absolutely yeah. Love it. All right. So if people want to learn more about your work, they want to hear more, they give us all the things, all the places that they can go. <laughs> well, you, you know, th this is always the spot that I turn three shades of red because I'm a middle school and a high school band director at heart. And then I went on to do the higher ed thing. And, you know, the first book that I wrote, the uh, Music Education and Social and Emotional Learning, The Heart of Teaching Music, was something that I did uh, while we were waiting for our son to be born. And I, you know, I had sabbatical uh, uh, and it was just a, a semester where I, I wrote something and it really has taken off. And so I am honored uh, by the reach that this has had. So, you know, th there are books through GIA. I've written four of them. One of them in collaboration with my wife, the ABCs of My Feelings in Music, which we're really, really proud of. Uh, it links visual arts with an artistic vocabulary, an emotional vocabulary, and ways to listen to music in different ways. <laughs> um, some other books that have really amplified teacher voice, uh, because, you know, as we talk about student empowerment, if there's not teacher empowerment first, very rarely do we have that model to experience student empowerment. So, you know, we haven't really talked about adult SEL and adult empowerment, but that's part of all of this too. Um, I would encourage you to check out uh, www.artsetsel.org. Um, and then we'll give you some other links because we have two great 
webinar series that we are approaching SEL in really bite-sized chunks. One is through the Save the Music Foundation called Student Empowerment through SEL and Music Education, where we brought in just some major, major players in the field about telling us what it looks like. And I know it will air after this, but one week from today on April 13th, we're doing an episode that I just can't wait for called Hip Hop uh, and Music Education for Student oh, Empowerment. Uh, so we cannot wait for that. And then the other one is through Music for All, where we've had two seasons now of how do music educators, leaders in our field, really start to understand what SEL is in their world. So those are the big three spaces that I would suggest. Okay. Sounds great. And you have a podcast as well. Is that Right. Yeah, and and those are those. Yes. So the music okay, for yeah, all one. The music okay. for all is the podcast that that I host. Gotcha. So uh, we do it in a very similar way. So we 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 do the video Perfect. and then we extract for podcast. But you can go to musicforall.org backslash sel and that'll bring you right to a space that you can see. I think we're up to something like twenty seven episodes now of Great. how sel intersects with music education. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this. It's 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 so encouraging and inspiring to hear about how these two things go together, and and hopefully, you know, more educators are going to look to how they can incorporate those SEO. Um, I guess this is the competencies. Is that the right terminology into what they're doing? And, and and I would be remiss. Thank you. I would be remiss if not saying that pass the baton is a game changer. So really, really uh, a gift to the profession. So beyond my honor. And, and I forgot. You know, I mean those those webinars and things are lovely. Edgar at LakeForest.edu. Send me an email. <laughs> you, you know, if you want to connect, send me a note, and I'm happy to engage. Perfect. Wonderful. Thank you. We'll make sure we put all of those links in the show notes, so that people can can learn more, get in contact. And all beautiful. Thank you so much. It's been such an honor. Yes, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'd also love for you to consider sharing this podcast with a friend and leaving a positive review. That's one of the best ways to get this message to new listeners.